Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 153, and this week we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to dedicate the first part of the episode to nothing but van life trivia. We're also going to talk about scooters, bikes, other auxiliary vehicles you might want to have in your van. A tale from the road involving a toll booth and a crazy person, and a product review of a great tablet that you shouldn't overlook. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. First off, I have to say thank you to everyone who wrote to me asking for stickers, uh, decals. I have sent them out. They are in the mail. So if you requested a sticker by now or by the time I'm recording this, it has been sent out. And thanks also to all of you who took the time to send me show ideas. I am collecting them and I will get to them eventually. Several people wrote to me asking me to talk about pets in vans, and I am working on that right now. In fact, I'm going to roll that into the interview coming up with FNA Van Life, and they travel with a cute little snaggletooth chihuahua named Paco, and we are going to talk to them about some of the adventures I've had with him. But now, it's time for trivia. So we have 10 trivia questions, and uh, yeah, well, you're going to have to score yourselves, folks, because I can't hear you, but they're all relating to van life, and some of them are fairly easy, and some of them are fairly hard, and hopefully all of them are somewhat interesting to people who have an interest in van life. So, let's get started. Number one, where does the word van come from? Well, it's short for the word caravan. Now, you might think, well, a caravan's kind of a group of people walking someplace. Well, no, the British usage of the term caravan usually means like an RV trailer, what we would call a travel trailer in the U.S., and that term got shortened over time and became van, and vans aren't just what we think of as vans. They're also a type of train car, so basically a big rolling box for cargo. That's what van translates to. Number two. What company made the first camper van with an engine in it? And no, it wasn't Volkswagen. The first vehicle that could arguably called a camper van was made by Pierce Arrow, and it was the Touring Landau, which debuted in 1910. Tell you folks, as long as vehicles have existed, people have been living in them. And that wasn't even the first necessarily. Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and some other folks used to go camping in their vehicles, and they modified Ford vehicles to be camping vehicles, but they usually didn't sleep in them. They usually slept in tents outside them. So I'm not going to count that one. I think the official answer is the Pierce Arrow Touring Landau. Number three. In the Ford E-150, 250, and so on, what does the E stand for? Bonus question, what does the F stand for in F-150, 250, etc.? And the answer is... E stands for Econoline, because they were supposed to be affordable vans that wouldn't cost you a lot of money if you were using them for deliveries and such. And they first came out in 1960. This vehicle is still being produced today, although only in cutaway versions. You can't buy a van. It's only the front of an RV or or box truck. 
But yeah, they have been around for 63 years. The answer to the bonus question, F in F-150, 250, etc., stands for Ford. Yeah, I know it's boring, but it actually does just stand for Ford. Number four, who coined the term van life? Well, the first recorded instance of using the hashtag van life was in 2012 when Foster Huntington used it on Instagram. He had just left his job as a fashion designer and he moved into a van and traveled around. But he didn't create the hashtag to celebrate van life. He actually created it to complain because, as he said in Huck magazine, the van was breaking down a bunch and there wasn't this crazy, hokey, aspirational thing when I started it. Well, little did he know, van life would become a pretty big thing. Number five. Are you required to have an address to live in the United States? A little bit of a trick question here. Legally, the federal government and state governments do not require you to have a permanent address. There's nothing in the Constitution about it. There are no laws about it. However, modern life will be very, very difficult if you don't have one. For example, to register your vehicle, you will need a permanent address. So, yeah. And uh, we have other podcasts about how to get a permanent address if you don't actually live someplace. Number six. How long can you stay in one state without registering your vehicle there? The answer is usually 30 days. Now, it varies from state to state, but it's usually only 30 days. That means if you go camp on BLM land in Nevada for like six weeks, technically you're supposed to re-register your van in Nevada because you live there now. Yeah, I don't know that anyone is ever going to enforce that. I mean, I in Chicago, I know there are vehicles in this parking lot with Texas tags on them that have had those tags on there for three years. But yeah, technically, you're only allowed a short amount of time in each state before you're supposed to register your vehicle there. Number seven. What year did Sprinter vans become available in the United States? Answer is 2001. Before 2001, Sprinter vans were available in Europe, as well as the Ford Transit, which is a Eurovan that wasn't available in the U.S. at that time. And the reason this is significant is because when the Sprinter came over to the U.S., people started getting the idea of like, wow, here is a high-top van that's in steady production that we can use for camping. And that's what ushered in the new boom of van life. I mean, there was one in the 70s. Uh, it was a little bit of a different focus. But the Sprinter is what started it all here in the U.S. Number eight. What is the biggest van you can get in the U.S.? And I'm just talking about a regular production van here, not step vans or box trucks or anything like that. What is the biggest van you can get? Okay, another little bit of a trick question. What does biggest mean? Well, if you're measuring cargo capacity, the largest van sold in the U.S. is the big sprinters. The high-top Sprinter 170s, they have the most cargo capacity at over 500 cubic feet. I mean, it's really not even close. But if you're looking for width, the Promaster is the widest van, which can be very important if you're going to sleep side to side and you're kind of tall. But if you're looking for height and you're kind of tall... Nothing beats the Ford Transit high top, which is over seven feet tall inside the van. So 
biggest? Well, depends on what you're looking for. Number nine. When you're driving on U.S. interstates, you are required to stop at way stations if you're driving a van. True or false? Generally, the answer is going to be false. It is only true if you're driving a commercial vehicle carrying commercial goods. The whole point of those way stations is to make sure that businesses are following the laws regarding moving cargo from one place to another, and the scale is just a part of it. They want to weigh the vehicles to make sure they don't weigh so much. Now, some van life people do get pulled over after passing way stations because they've made their vans look like commercial vehicles, or they haven't removed the decals from what the vehicle was before. But in those cases, I've never heard of anyone getting into trouble. They just have to explain to the officer, this is not a commercial vehicle. And a quick look at the registration will prove that. And number 10. In what year did Chris Farley tell us this? My name is Matt Foley, and I am a motivational speaker. I am 35 years old. I am thrice divorced, and I live in a van down by the river. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> different times, huh? Well, those different times were in 1993, when living in a van was seen as something not good. <laughs> yeah, things have changed quite a bit, at least for some of us. So, folks, that was just a little bit of fun. I thought maybe, you know, we'd shake things up a little bit, throw some trivia in there. If you have any disputes with my answers to the trivia, please write me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Tech Talk. Someone asked me, what was the best vehicle to bring with your van? Now, I'm not talking about towing a car here. I mean, that's a whole other thing. No, they're talking about something you can put in the van or attach to the van, such as an e-bike or an electric scooter or I don't even know what they're, they're called, those little things you wheel around on on one wheel. Well, the answer is it really depends on a lot of factors. I mean, what are you doing? What are you going to be doing with that vehicle? Now, if you're going to be doing off-roading, well, you're going to have something off-road capable. So I would suggest looking at an electric off-road bike. And I would mount that off the bumper hitch in the back and keep the battery inside the van. I think that would be the best solution here. Now, all right, what about gasoline? Yeah, sure, you can have a gasoline one, but that's that's really not what we're talking about here because that's that's been done. That's obvious. We're talking about electric things here. And what about little hoverboards and things like that? Well, sure, they're easy. They're absolutely simple. You just throw them in the van. And if you can ride on them without breaking your neck, uh, <laughs> I can't. Absolutely, that's a good solution. And there are these new unicycle things that I, I've seen a couple of times. They're just like this big wheel that you straddle, almost like a one-wheeled Segway. Yeah, those would work just fine too. I mean, honestly, anything will work if it fits in your van and it'll get you where you're going. That's not what you have to worry about. What you have to worry about is how do you charge these things? So this becomes a typical van life problem in the end. You've got this battery, how do you charge it? And here's where it gets difficult with these devices. The batteries in these typically aren't 12 volts. 
there's some higher voltage, which means you have to plug them into 110 volts in order to get enough voltage to charge the batteries. So when you're charging these things in your van, you're probably going to have to use an inverter. There's really no way around that because if you have a 12-volt van, you just can't generate enough voltage to charge them. So that means they're going to take up a whole lot of power to charge. And that's a problem. You know, most vans are specced out so that they will have enough capacity to charge the batteries that power the van these things are going to suck a whole lot of power and it's not like you can just attach a solar panel directly to it i mean those batteries have so much capacity that a little solar panel isn't going to keep up with it so consider that probably the best vehicle for dealing with that problem is some sort of a hybrid bike that you can pedal but has electric assist that's where I would go. And I would look for something with a removable battery so that I could charge the battery in one place and keep the bike in another. But remember, and I'm sure everyone's got this on their mind right now, these batteries can catch fire, especially if they aren't on a mobile thing that can get smacked around or get wet. So make sure you have a fire extinguisher handy at all times and you know what to do with these lithium batteries when they do catch fire. And the answer is... Get them out of your van and then soak them in water if you can. I mean, that's the protocol for airplanes. Side note, did you know that's why you can't pack lithium batteries on airplanes? You have to bring them on the plane. It's so if there is a problem, the flight attendants can take the batteries and throw them in a bucket of water. That's the official protocol for dealing with them. Anyway, great question. I would love to hear anyone's stories about how they're handling this problem. But again, keeping them charged is going to be your biggest concern. Tales from the road. Well, many years ago, I was driving north in New Jersey. And no, I was not on the New Jersey Turnpike. I was on the Garden State Parkway, the other road. And back then, geez, what year was this? This must have been around 2000, something like that. The Garden State Parkway still had tolls like every 10 miles. It was one of the most annoying roads to drive in the world because every 10 miles you'd have to throw 35 cents in a little basket or hand somebody a dollar and wait for change. And there was a line at each toll. We have it so easy now. While tolls are very, very expensive, you generally don't even have to stop now. You just keep driving, and that's much preferable in my opinion. So this particular day... We were driving from Washington, D.C. to Vermont, I believe, possibly Massachusetts, doesn't matter, going up the Garden State Parkway, and traffic was terrible. It was just wall-to-wall traffic the whole way. It was taking forever, and it was hot, and there were cars overheating, and it was just miserable. And I'm driving a minivan. I think I was driving a Mercury Villager at the time. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is there's like six toll booths and then like 12 lanes leading into those toll booths. So everyone's trying to squeeze in at the last minute. Anyway, we finally get to the toll booth and it's not an automatic one. It's one where there's a toll taker and there isn't even a basket to throw money in. You have to give him money. And so we get there and the guy's just a little weird. Like at first he's not even paying attention to us. And so I get the money and I hold it out the window and he, he's like, come on, come on, you have to pay me, you have to pay me. And he's like not holding out his hand or anything. I don't actually have a way to give him the money. And then he sticks his hand out the window really quickly, like awkwardly, and hits my hand. And the money 
falls on the ground. And then he loses it. He completely loses it. What did you do? What did you do? You can't do that. You stay right there. You stay right there. And we're in this weird situation now because my van is very close to the door that lets him into his toll booth. He can't open his door to get the money. I can't open my door to get the money. And he's screaming at me. And I'm trying to get a word in edgewise, like, okay, hold on a sec, I'll get the money. No, he wouldn't hear it. He starts pounding on the door. His face turns beet red. He's actually spitting across the gap between us. And finally, I'm like, this guy's scary. So I said very calmly, sir, I'm sorry the money was dropped. It's right there. You are making me feel unsafe, and I'm going to drive away. And then he loses it even more. No, no, you can't leave. You can't leave. Oh, I don't know what was going on with this guy. I mean, consider the situation. We're in this heavy traffic. There's thousands of cars there. I must have been his three or 400th car he had seen today. And I think, I think he just broke. (laughs) I mean, it would break me. It's not as though these things are air conditioned and he's standing out there in the sun on the Garden State Parkway in the middle of traffic, breathing in fumes all day, lost it. So I didn't know what to do. I mean, I I left. I'm like, look, this guy might like crawl through the window or something. I don't know what's going on. So I left and I had my family in the car. I had two young kids and my wife at the time. And so we start driving off. And uh, this was a situation where once you got out of the toll booths, the traffic eased up a bit. And I saw a policeman, a state trooper, sitting on the side of the road in his car. And so I pulled up behind him and actually kind of went onto the shoulder or the breakdown lane, as we call them in the east, and rolled down my window. And he rolled down his passenger window. And I told him this story about how this guy was losing it. And, well, I figured he'd just blow me off. I, I really didn't think he'd take it seriously, but... He seemed to know what I was talking about, which was odd. And uh, he assured me that he'd go take care of it. (laughs) I did not see what happened. I don't know what happened to the car behind us. And holy cow. And, you know, again, the moral of this story is uh, you don't have to stay in situations you don't feel safe in. You know, if if something like this is happening and you don't feel safe, leave. Sort it out afterwards. And uh, I never did sort it out. And... As far as I'm concerned, I paid the toll. It just wasn't in exactly the right place. Product review. Okay, so you may have heard me do a product review a while back about iPads. And yes, I have an iPad. I have a fairly fancy iPad because I can edit videos on it. And there's a lot of advantages to that. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I want to talk about the best bargain in tablets that's available right now. Now, there's a link in the show notes. It's an affiliate link, so you could consider this maybe an ad. But if you've known me for a while, you know I don't just do ads for the heck of it. I I wouldn't say something that I don't believe. And these Fire tablets from Amazon are pretty darned amazing and make a good choice for van life because they're mostly under 100 bucks, And they do 90% of what an iPad can do. I mean, think about it. What are you using your tablet for? I can think of three main reasons in a van. One is to browse the web. Okay, it browses the web. Mm-hmm. Another is to look at media, right? So you've been taking pictures with your camera. You have all this media on an SD card. You want to pop it into something with a bigger screen and look at it. Yeah, this does that just fine. 
And the other thing is for media consumption, like you want to use it to watch movies and all that. And yeah, you can download movies onto this device, although probably you want to put them on some kind of a USB card or stick, and then watch them on there just fine. Now, is it as good as an iPad? No, the screen isn't as good. It's not even as big. It's limited to a subset of Android apps. I mean, there's a way to jailbreak the thing, kind of, but you have to use their store to download apps, but that's not that big of a deal. And they do tend to show you ads. But so what? (laughs) For 59 bucks, you can have a tablet that will do almost everything you need, and then if it gets wrecked or you lose it or somebody steals it, Eh, you've lost 59 bucks instead of, I don't know, some of these iPads are like $1,400. Yes, you can get a keyboard for it. There's all kinds of accessories for it. And one thing I think is interesting, they make kids models that are encased in this padding. And there's one that's the kids pro model, which is a higher spec model, but still has the padding. That one actually might be the best one for van life because it comes with a two-year warranty of basically... Anything you do to it, you can throw it on the ground and break it and they'll cover it. At least I think that's how the policy works. So if you're looking for a tablet, something to consume media with in your van, I think it's a no-brainer that unless you have a need for an iPad or a Samsung tablet or something fancy, these are amazing. I mean, you could simply attach one to the wall of your van or to a cabinet or something and have everything you need right there. You don't need a TV. Now, Will you need an internet connection? Yes, they do not have their own cellular connection, which is one of the big advantages of the iPad to me. But then you're also not paying an extra 25, 30, 40 bucks a month for that either. So I've got a link in the show notes. I would get the best one you can because they're so cheap that, you know, 79 bucks versus 59 bucks, that extra 20 bucks, you might as well spend it to get a bigger screen. In my opinion, you do you. A place to visit. So, I don't know why, but I started playing Fallout 4 again. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing, Fallout Fallout games are always fascinating to me because they are so accurate as to where they're set. You know, Fallout 3 was in the D.C. area, Fallout New Vegas was in, shocker, Las Vegas, and, and this one is set in Boston, and I have lived in all three of those places. And I recognize everything. Like, I know people who have gone to Washington, D.C. after playing Fallout 3 and been shocked that the metro train stations are exactly the same as they're in the game. And Boston, it's not exactly the same, of course, and they've had to squish things a little bit. And uh, Salem is in the game, and it's not really all that similar. The Witch Museum is pretty close, though. But... The USS Constitution is in the game, and that's a place that I think you should visit. Now, the Freedom Trail is a part of Boston where there's this brick line, basically, in the city sidewalks. And if you follow that along, you'll have a little walk through history. You'll see the Boston Common, where a heck of a lot of people were hanged. They don't tell you about that. You'll see Paul Revere's house. And eventually, you'll get into Charlestown, which was the original capital city before Boston, after Salem, long story there, and you'll get to the USS Constitution. The USS Constitution was commissioned in 1797, and it is still an officially registered naval vessel. You may have heard it called Old Ironsides, and that's because it was in a battle where an English ship was firing upon it in the War of 1812, and the cannonballs just bounced off the side. 
that was probably more due to how far away the English ship was rather than how strong the Constitution was. But it is clearly a strong ship because it's still sailing today, although I imagine it's had a lot of work done. So you can visit this ship, and it's it's actually, I mean, there's lots of ships you can visit, right? There's, there's, there's the Constellation is down in Baltimore, and there's ships all over the country, but this one is special because it is pristine. Being a naval vessel, this thing is in tip-top condition and is actually seaworthy and sail-ready. They do take this thing out from time to time. And it's amazing to be on something like this. And there's all kinds of little secrets and stuff you learn by going through the museum. For example, at one time, this large sailing vessel had paddle wheels. They added paddle wheels to it and a big boiler just to see how it was. And the shape of the ship didn't work out very well for that, so they took them out. But there's a little interesting thing. This ship has sailed all around the world, and it now lives in Boston Harbor, and the cannons actually still work. So I don't know if you're going to be at Boston anytime soon. I'm going to be there uh, towards the end of next summer, and I'm hoping to get to visit USS Constitution. Oh, another little tidbit about it. So you have heard the official Marine Corps hymn that goes, From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Well, guess what was in Tripoli? That's right, the USS Constitution. <laughs> anyway, fun little thing to visit. Unique in the world, oldest still commissioned naval vessel anywhere. And I think you should stop and see it. A lot of people go to Boston and just never get there. I think you should go. There's actually got a lot of van parking there too, which is nice. Resource recommendation. I think I have talked about this before, but I'm going to bring it up again because it's important, very useful, and it's something you should know about. Every vehicle has a VIN, which some people call a VIN number, although that is a little bit redundant because VIN stands for Vehicle Identification Number. It's several places on your vehicle, usually in the door jam, nearly almost always in the front left of the windshield on the dashboard so people can walk up and look at it, and it's usually on the engine block somewhere too. But this number is the official number of your vehicle. There's only one number per vehicle. But the number isn't just a number. It has a lot of data in it. It actually tells you the entire history of your vehicle insofar as how it was built, when it was built, what options it has. And you can, it, I mean, it's kind of amazing. So I installed a diesel heater in my van and my VIN had something to do with that because when I decoded my VIN online... It told me that I had an auxiliary fuel tank tap, which meant that I could hook a diesel heater directly to the fuel tank without doing too much work. And that was a huge deal for me. That was kind of what pushed me over the edge that, oh, okay, I can do a diesel heater and I don't, I don't have to do very much. And that is in my VIN. So how do you do this? Well, there are a number of VIN decoders online. Some of them are a little sketchy, so you kind of have to be careful. But one that I can recommend easily is the government's, and it is... And I'll have a link in the show notes. It is vpic.nhtsa.dot.gov slash decoder slash. <laughs> and if you go to that site, there's just a, a box there saying type in your VIN. If you can't find your VIN, it's on your title, it's on your registration, and it's probably on your insurance card too, which I find is the easiest way to get it. 
type it in there and it will tell you all about your vehicle. It'll tell you what country it was built in, what model it is, what engine it has, all that kind of stuff. And this can be super useful if you are buying a vehicle and you want to check it out and make sure they're representing it properly. For example, you could have an E150 that somebody put an E350 decal on, and how would you know the difference? I mean, unless you're super knowledgeable about vans and know that E350s sit up higher from E150s and have a different suspension and all that, you may not even know. But the VIN doesn't lie. So definitely check that out. That is the National Highway Traffic Safety Association's VIN Decoder. And yeah, there's VINDecoder.com and VINDecoder.net, but eh, you got to be a little careful about that because it's kind of sensitive information. And a little bit of news here. Winnebago has debuted their electric camper van, and it's not available for production yet, but... But... Um, but this might be the way things are heading. Anyway, it's it's got some issues. <laughs> uh, it The previous prototypes had a special battery built into it, an 86 kilowatt hour battery built by Lightning E-Motors. They're, they don't have it in the new one. The new one has the standard Transit E-Battery, which only has 68 kilowatt hours. In testing, the van does 70 to 90 miles before needing to be recharged. And uh, that's not very good. But Winnebago says that they're going to work on that, and before this thing hits production, it's going to have a much longer range. They also say that it only takes 45 minutes to charge that battery up to 80%. So you're basically charging it as much time as you can drive it. 45 minutes of charging might equal 45 minutes of driving. But that isn't what's interesting about this. What's interesting What's interesting is what's in the back. This thing has a 48-volt battery in the back, a second battery, and it's a 1,500-kilowatt battery. So 1,500 watts of battery in the back, and that is going to be recharged by a 900-watt solar panel on the roof. And these specs are similar to what some of you guys have done in your vans, I know. But it's interesting that it's 48 volts, and that allows it to run air conditioning much easier. And, you know, maybe that's how it's going to be in the future, folks. Maybe we're all going to have 48-volt back sections of our vans. Who knows? As for pricing, I haven't heard anything yet. It is not listed in any of the articles, but I'm going to guess near $200,000. Because remember, the cheapest van Winnebago sells is the Solus, and it starts at about $105,000. And it's just a pop-top, so this thing's going to be expensive. Anyway, not time yet, but... Every time they come out with a new prototype, we get a little bit closer to having electric vans. And for those of us building our own vans, we can learn something from how they're doing this. Is it time to switch from 12 volts to 48 volts in the back? Mm, probably not just yet, but let's see where this goes. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this rather odd episode. I appreciate you being there. And again, if you write to me and ask me to do something on the show, there's a good chance I will do it. You can get a hold of me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Vera Nazarian. Science is an organized pursuit of triviality. Art is a casual pursuit of significance.